Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, we aren't exploring training. Instead, we're learning about ways in which horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. This is part three of my conversation with Navona Gallegos. Navona is a horse person, an ecologist, a soil specialist who lives in New Mexico. She's in a very beautiful landscape, but one that is completely different from what I'm used to. In this episode, we're going to be talking about compost. Unless you keep your horses out on pasture 24-7, 12 months out of the year, you have a manure pile. So what can you do with all that manure to help build up beautiful, organic, rich soil? That's what we're going to be talking about. I just had this thought, which is that we didn't talk about compost at all. Compost is really useful <laughs> in the process. Well, I haven't, I haven't hit the end button and I haven't stopped recording. So, so compost, tell me about compost. Well, so just like horses and other grazers inoculate the soil with their manure um, and bring fungi and bacteria that the soil needs, we can also do that with compost. And compost is this whole science, really, and there are lots of different ways of composting. But the one that I think is the easiest and the best for bringing fungi and regenerating land is the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor that was developed by David Johnson. And bioreactor makes it sound like a really high-tech thing, but if you look it up, it's simple. You can make it in a couple days. Um, it's basically a static compost. So it's a big cylinder and you put PVC pipes in a little pattern inside of it and you fill it up all in one go with pretty much anything. You can fill it up with horse manure, you can fill it up with leaves, wood. I would suggest a diversity because we always want the diversity of right. foods. Um, for our fungal friends. And then once you fill it up, you just take the PVC pipes out once everything is settled. And so it has this aeration and you don't have to turn it. Um, all you have to do is water it and you can set up like a little irrigation drip water on a timer or something, or you can just water it with your garden plants in the morning or however you wanna do it, but you just keep it watered and you let it sit for a year. And when it's finished, it has a tremendous biodiversity of bacteria and fungi and worms will come into it. And David Johnson down in Las Cruces at New Mexico State has done some research just spraying a slurry of this compost on this really barren dead dirt in the hot desert. And he's seen amazing results with regeneration. And so um, that's a really easy thing you can do if you just make a weekend project out of setting up this Johnson Sioux compost. It sit and then ideally a year nine months to a year later you can come back to it and you just mix it up in water and splash it across your pasture land and you'll be really helping the helping the soil when we built the barn we built a, an o2 composter do you know what those what that is no i don't and it'd be interesting to know how if you ran the o2 composter correctly well how it would compare to 
the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. It's a structure that you build and you can build it more or less elaborately. Ours had to be fairly elaborate because we have because we had to build a frost wall to meet zoning regulations. Um, so there's a fair amount of concrete that goes into the ground. But picture, like we built five bays. So the bays are sort of the size of a, you know, like a good size stall, a, a 15 by 20 stall. So they're, they're fair sized. And underneath uh, the base of them, there's a, um, you run PVC pipe underneath and there's a fan on the side. So you can blow air through the PVC pipe into the bottom of this um, area. And so you fill it just as, you know, so it's basically your, uh, the bay in which you would take whatever your manure, et cetera, from stalls, if you're keeping your horses in a way that, uh, where they're not out on a field, but they're generating bedding and manure and hay that all needs to be dealt with in some way. And you fill the bay. And once it's filled, you then run the, the uh, you turn the fan on for a month but not constantly. So it runs for something like five minutes every hour, something like that. It's on a timer. And so you, you aerate the bay for 30 days and then you let it sit for another 30 days. And after that, you can spread it if you want on your fields. And the idea is that uh, you've got because you've been aerating it, that you are speeding up the rate at which the uh, material is composted. That's the theory anyway. So it'd be interesting to see how, how do those two systems compare. It's basically a very simple thing to build because you're just, uh, you've, you can build it out of wood. These days, wood is so expensive, um, but you could build a, you know, a wooden, box for it and just run the PVC pipe um, through the bottom and run a fan through and you've got yourself an active O2 composter. And the advantage to it is you're not having to turn it mm -hmm. the way you, so you're not to aerate it. You're not having to go in with a machine and turn the manure pile. Yeah. That'd be really interesting to compare. I think the static compost with the Johnson Sioux it gets really fungally biodiverse because it doesn't get turned. Um, and so what you're doing isn't turning um, because when you turn it, right. the mycelial networks and they can rebuild in a compost, but the less you turn it, the more robust those networks get. So yeah, I mean, really what you're wanting to do with compost always is keep it aerobic. So if it gets anaerobic, there's no oxygen. That's sort of a situation in a horse stall. Like why would you take all this manure and straw and shavings out the reason you do is because it gets anaerobic um you know stinky and slimy and we can right. affect an anaerobic situation with our nose um because that's where I mean, we've, we've evolved to detect anaerobic situations because that's where pathogens occur so yeah if you're keeping it aerobic then that's the that's the ticket and of course that what the people who develop the o2 composting system what they're saying is you're you're heating up the material to a degree that kills 
the uh, unwanted pathogens and it kills the weed seeds and it kills the, the parasites mm-hmm. that you don't want. Mm-hmm. But it sounds as though some of those things are things that we do want. So I, I don't know where the balance of that, where that. Yeah, the balance comes in really monitoring the temperature in what's called thermophilic composting, which is what that's talking about. So thermophilic is referring to the organisms that like it hot and yeah so if we let it get hot then it will kill some of the weed seeds and some pathogens like like salmonella and things like that that we might not want but there's this it's a it really takes some tending to because there's this window of it's hot enough that it's doing those things but it's yes not so hot that it's killing the beneficial organisms we want um, so if it gets hotter than 140 Fahrenheit for more than three days, then we shift into an anaerobic situation where it's killing the, the fungi and the bacteria that we do want. And it's actually cultivating the anaerobic, mostly bacteria, not fungi, that we don't really want. Yeah. So this, this oak two composter, when we bought the designs for it, it came with this wonderful temperature probe so that you could monitor the temperature of your compost and uh, and you could get very, I want to say very nerdy very quickly in uh, caring for your compost pile. I have not gone down that road, I have to say, but it has produced some really nice looking compost, which has created some very beautiful gardens. So awesome. Yeah. So there you go. And, and so, yes, compost is a really important part of this whole regenerative process. And I've looked at the website of the Johnson Sioux bioreactor and and thought, that looks like a huge amount of work. But if you're saying it can be done in a weekend, then that's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. You just get the pile of stuff you're going to put into it. And if you're keeping horses, you probably have plenty of things to fill it with. Yes. Grab more wood chips at the whatever, you know, soil yard or, um, where I am, the the dump has a bunch of green waste wood chips. But yeah, you just make the cylinder with metal mesh and line it and wet everything down and fill it up. So it's it's some work to do, but it's maybe 16 hours with one person. So if you make a little project of it with a couple people, but then the nice thing is you just leave it alone and it gets really juicy. Yeah. And then it's so good for the land. So, and however we're we're creating the compost, that's an important part of good land management. And then we get into the Dr. Doug Tallamy's work, uh, building more biodiversity. And his big thing is, you know, leave the leaves, you know, leave the, so when the the trees are, uh, when the trees, when the leaves fall in the fall and so on, this raking that goes on in my part of the world or all of these, this organic matter is raked to the front of people's property and the town trucks come through and collect it all up and take it off. And yes, they do compost with it, but oh, how much better it would be to just leave it on your land. Mm-hmm. You know, leave those leaves for so many reasons. Because a lot of these municipal composting yards are not doing that really nerdy work of taking the temperature every day and turning it immediately if it's getting too hot and so most of the municipal composting is anaerobic so it's creating a compost that's not a good 
inoculant for the soil. And that anaerobic decomposition process actually emits methane and other greenhouse gases. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Because what, what had always stopped me from going to the town, because they, they, they give compost away, but what had always stopped me was they're collecting organic matter from suburbia where people are putting all kinds of chemicals on their lawns. So yeah, they're composting these grass cuttings, but the grass cuttings are filled with toxins. Yeah. So I don't want that compost. So that's always stopped me, but I hadn't really thought about, you know, they're not necessarily building because there's good compost and then there's compost that's been done anaerobically. That's a really good point. Wow. So we need to we need to change what we see as aesthetically beautiful and to see instead that the leaves underneath a tree and the wildflowers that in the ferns and so on that grow as a result of that biomass and the and the insects that can then complete their life cycle because those leaves are left in place and those insects are critical if we want birds to be able to find enough food in the spring to raise their clutches of eggs and so on and so on and so on that it's that whole process of shifting what we think is beautiful yeah definitely just like shifting away from a competitive goal-oriented way of being with horses to just appreciating the relationship yeah and it really is it's an interesting it is the metaphor so when you look at a horse who is magnificently turned out for the show ring and his whiskers are clipped his tail has been cut even his mane is braided his ears are trimmed you know he may even have some some uh what is it some oil around his eyes to make his eyes pop out and and, and be more expressive and longer hairs around his coronet band they're all trimmed away you know and he's got shoes on and that this is we look at this and we think oh that's a beautiful horse or we look at a shaggy horse who's never had his whiskers clipped in his entire life who's got tufts of hair in his ears and feathers around his coronet band and his his mane is this wonderful poof and a long tail you know that's I'm thinking of like some of the the Icelandics that that I uh, love so much and we look at those horses and we say that's a beautiful horse and so when we look at suburbia are we wanting to see that horse that's been sh- turned out for show with his whiskers trimmed or can we see the the shaggier yard that has never had you know that that is cared for and groomed and maintained in a really healthy way, but where the leaves are left. That's what, that's the shift we need to get to. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad we talked about compost. <laughs> <laughs> More fun, good things. So we'll let we'll let people we'll leave people on that note in terms of how do you create a a really healthy com- because we so I I'm a gardener. I've always been a gardener. Where I live, the house that I live in, 
we can't have livestock. It's zoned against livestock. So even if there was enough land, which there isn't, we can't have livestock. So I've always had to garden without the benefit, the direct benefit of herbivores. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful illustrator, Tasha Tudor, who wrote, who drew just the most charming and delightful drawings of her gardens. And she lived in New Hampshire. And I would look at her these drawings of gardens that would rival anything in England. And I love the, you know, the English country gardens look. And, and I would look at that and I just think, oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And then in my own garden, I would try and create something comparable and just never, ever came close. And it used to annoy me no end because there was Tasha Tudor in New Hampshire, which is a much harsher environment, growing on soil that's, you know, like barely inches deep. And she's got this beautiful garden. And I've got much deeper soil and a milder climate. And I can't get anywhere close to what she has. And the difference is that she had goats. Mm, interesting. So her goats were fertilizing and nourishing her garden. And so, you know, one of the great advantages that horse people have is we have manure, <laughs> you know, and if we, if we keep our horses in any sort of a managed way. So my horses here, they, they have a habitat where they have access to the barn and the, the arena and the doors are all left open. So yes, there are stalls, but the stall doors are all open. So they can wander wherever they want to go, but the gates out to the grass paddocks are closed except uh, from certain hours. So they, they, in the summer, they go out at about 2.30 in the morning and they're back in by, well, when they, whenever they bring themselves in. And once we get into fly season, that's, you know, as soon as the sun starts to come up there, they're not wanting to be out. So they do their own self-management. But I, I definitely want them in before 10 o'clock when the sugars start to go up in the grasses. And because they are in that managed area of the barn and its immediate surroundings, we do have uh, manure that has to be picked up and managed in some way. So we have you know, I have uh, manure piles that are generated. And uh, it's how do you manage those so you get the best compost possible? And what you're saying is there is a, a, a skill to it, an art to it. There's something to be learned. It's not just build a mountain uh, out of sight of the, of the rest of your barn, but you can really, you can really create some uh, wonderful compost that benefits your land. And that that's an important part of horse management, particularly when you are in situations where you are generating what would otherwise be a manure pile. Definitely. And then we can all have gorgeous gardens because if Tasha Tudor could do that with goats, then surely we should be able to do something comparable with our horses. Mm -hmm. And again, it's fun. Totally. So, totally. <laughs> Totally. Oh, I was just going to ask where you are. I know you're back east. But... I'm in uh, upstate New York. Okay, cool. Yeah. So a very so you're in what would be called a fragile 
environment, a fragile ecosystem. And um, the Northeast is definitely not in terms of the abuse that land can take before you completely crash it. So we get, I think in this area, our, I saw one statistic where our, we get more rain than Seattle, which I thought was, what? <laughs> Nobody gets more rain than Seattle, but apparently we do. So we're pretty green through the growing season. And then we, uh, we're cold. So we, we're very, very hot and humid in the summer and we can be Arctic cold in the winter, which has its own challenges. <laughs> yeah. And, but the, the, the principles, the concepts, I think are universal. And the, the, what we want is universal. And we want healthy horses, which means that we have to learn more about pasture management because you know what you said earlier, you know, 40, 50 years ago, people didn't see some of, you know, when I was growing up, I did not, I did not encounter a colicking horse until I was in my 20s. I we never had, we never had a horse colic. And you, you heard about laminitis, you know, well, if the horse gets into the grain room, you know, you have to worry about laminitis, but you never saw laminitic horses. You never saw laminitic ponies. Wow. It just, it, it was not, it was not the norm. And now wherever you look, it's, it, that's the norm and that's the worry. So it, the universal is we're doing something that's not working. So we need to figure out what, you know, why is it that these herbivores, these grazing animals can't be allowed to eat grass? I mean, that's ridiculous. So they are the, they are the canary in the mine. That we have a grazing animal that we have to pull off of pasture because if we let them get even a blade of grass, they'll become laminitic kind of thinking. So what can we do to turn that around? And some of the people I've been talking to, I just did a great series with Jane Jackson where she was talking about her pasture rotation in Vermont. And she's got an ancient... Cushing's pony who can be turned out in her grass, her tall grass pasture with her other horses. And this pony can have a quality of life and knock on wood, she's not laminitic. Wow. Because of the pasture rotation that Jane follows. So it can be done. The principles are universal. It can be done. We can have healthier horses. We can have healthier land. And then the really cool thing that you're sharing with us when we start talking about the fungus and uh, things like the glomalin and the role that all of these soil microorganisms have is that at the same time that our horses are becoming healthier, we're sequestering carbon. Yeah. It's like yeah. <laughs> you know, which is pretty important because you know, it would be nice if 50 years from now, we're still living on a viable planet. That, that would be a really good thing. And if we're not careful, we're not going to be living on a viable, well, we're not going to be living. So all of this is important. And what I find deliciously 
wonderful is to think that the horses could be part of the solution. So we look at the role that horses have played historically, three, 4,000 years, the role that horses have played in human development, you know, like bringing the Mongols uh, across the, into Europe on the backs of horses and so on, and the way that horses were used in warfare and the way that horses took people across the prairies when the Europeans across the prairies and, you know, and the way that horses have plowed the fields, horses and oxen. And then with the mechanization and tractors and cars that horses became just, you know, recreational. And then, but that horses should be part of the solution. I just think is deliciously wonderful that they could help us to understand how to manage the land in a way that can really turn things around in terms of climate change. Wouldn't that be neat if it was the horses that led the way? That's beautiful. And they, yeah. I think that's what they're doing when we're so called to them, just to be around them. It's this, yes, in us, or this naturalness in us, and the call for better horse keeping, better land management, and then just better management of ourselves um, is to to let ourselves go a little bit. Like let the, stay on the earth and let the horses be rugged and have their whiskers and play with each other and have relationships and let ourselves relax on the need to have a perfectly manicured lawn and instead play in our weedy, biodiverse, landscapes yes that has rabbits in the backyard yes i mean that's their deeper voice that's that's where they're taking us so when we go out through the pasture paddock gate that's where they want to take us we just have to allow ourselves to go with them yeah so on that note that's where we'll end we'll step outside the pasture gate and travel with our horses where they want to take us where they're going to guide us. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are good guides. So thank you. Thank you so much. There's really nothing more to add. I'll post the links to both the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor and the O2 Composter on the sequestercarbon.com website. So all that's left is to thank you for listening. Remember, we can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. When we follow our horses outside their paddock gates, we remember why that's important. So I'll wish you good journeys with your horses. Mm-hmm.